0: and welcome to wisdom of the elders the podcast i'm ron alesco along with the series creator sunny oaks sunny i can't believe it this is episode number seven of our podcast wow we're getting there we'll be getting good at it soon <laughs> <laughs> oh we're already good and we're good because you you created this back in 2010 at nerfa and also the folk alliance and now I think all of the uh, regionals are are holding their own Wisdom of the Elders, and now we're doing this monthly podcast, doing some new ones, and today we're going to the archives, and we're heading up to Canada.
1: Yes, I decided I would like to do a Canadian Wisdom of the Elders, and since we were having the conference in Toronto that year, I figured, what the heck, I've got them right here, let's do it.
0: Yeah, this was back in 2013. Uh, I know Nerf, uh, the Folk Alliance International, they occasionally head up to Canada. I, I attended a couple in Montreal and Vancouver. But this one, uh, you put together quite a pound.
1: Well, I chose these three because I, I knew all three of them quite well, oh, particularly the, the guys. <laughs> and I thought, oh, wow, what a what a grouping they would make. So I got hold of Sylvia Tyson. And she said graciously said, yes, I was very excited about that. And Sylvia is from Ian and Sylvia. Ian mm-hmm. just passed, but uh, Sylvia is still out there and going strong. And I I learned so much about her. I was really in awe of her. And then Mitch Podolik, oh, Mitch was such a nice person to be around. And he was one, one of the founders of the, uh, Van, the Vancouver, the Winnipeg Folk Festival. That, among others I mean he was a real mover and shaker behind the scenes not not everybody knew about him but he was he was really a major contributor to the folk scene in Canada and then there was Richard Flohill from Toronto who well, what an amazing guy he is a real he just he he produced people he knew people and he was just So exciting to listen to when he spoke. So I feel, oh, wow, there it is. There's the trio. And I put them together. And then I invited Tom Coxworth to be my co-emcee. Tom is a very well-known DJ up in Canada. Been around for a long time and has done remarkable things. Yeah, Here we go. All right, you just threw it over to me. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Wisdom of the Elders. This is a concept that I developed about two or three years ago. And I thought, we have so many wonderful elders in our community, and they're not gonna be with us forever, so. Well, thank you very much. I knew this was gonna be the most interesting one of all. There's no question. You, you've heard of Hatch Match. Well, this could be the dispatch. Yeah, yeah. Now look, let me be serious for one minute, and then we can all go to hell, right? That was serious. All right, so I just want to tell you what this is all about. So we've done three of these at NERFA, Northeast Regional Folk Alliance, and they've all been very interesting and very successful. So when I found out that uh, Folk Alliance was going to be in Toronto this year, I said, ooh, let's make it an international event, and let's start out with a panel of all, except for me, all Canadians. And I think it's a wonderful group of people that I've managed to get together here, and they've all been very gracious about accepting. They were all my first choices. I didn't have to go to any second choices, so here we go. And uh, I happen to be, as you can see, I I don't keep notes, and I'm very off the wall, so I always need a co-host who is organized and anal and has, you know, (laughs) things written down.
2: (laughs) Oh, my goodness.
1: So I thought, who do I know in Canada? Ah, Tom Coxworth from CKUA. (laughs) so I invited Tom and he graciously said yes and then as for the panelists of course who else but uh, Mitch Podolik who has started several festivals as a spare time hobby I guess (laughs) and Sylvia Tyson who has one of the most beautiful voices on the planet and has quite a history much more than I realized now that I've read the book. (laughs) And uh, Richard Flohill, who lives here in Toronto and just about knows everybody, and everybody knows him. So that is our panel. And we're each going to to interview each of these people for about 15 minutes. And then we're going to do a more general back and forth, because they all know each other. And then we'll throw it open to questions from you, the audience. There is a mic there to use. So we're going to start with Tom Coxworth doing his thing.
2: My thing is basically to uh, thank Sonny Oaks for inviting me here. This is a real privilege, and uh, organized is, is not quite true with all of these papers here, but uh, Sonny has allowed me to join her here, and she comes from a long history of being in folk music, having a folk family. Uh, Not only Michael, but of course Phil Oakes himself being her brothers. And uh, she is a producer of many radio programs and quite a knowledgeable person. So I I am humbled uh, to be brought into this today. I'm looking so forward to this because we have three artists on the stage. The obvious being Sylvia Tyson, who as you know through the history, especially if you you want to applaud at any time for anything (laughs) they do, sit up, get down, whatever. Um, But we also have Mitch and Richard, who are artists in their own right, because we all find ourselves on stages at various points in our life. Much can happen behind the stage, but this is what we're going to focus on, is the wisdom that they have to share for those in the audience behind the stage and on the stage. Well, because you are within elbow striking distance of Richard, I think you can control that down. We weren't sure if this was going to be a moderating session or a refereeing session. (laughs) And there's actually method to the madness because all of them are kind of connected to Sylvia there, knowing her for many years of her career as well. So we're pretty sure that she's going to be feisty enough to get in there and uh, <laughs> take over any part of the conversation she feels is not going directly. So I'm going to start with Mitch here. Mitch I have known only for about 25 years. Huh. Mitch Padalic, of course, as you may well know, certainly here in Canada, was one of the founders of the Winnipeg Folk Festival. Uh, through various... Yes, yes indeed. Clap when you want. Yeah. He is still a prized possession of Winnipeg. Nobody else will have him. Um, <laughs> he, he, is go- he is most noted for recognizing talent as well, more than anything else, not only as a festival uh, director and producer, but he is the man that started his own record label so that he could produce a young upstart who didn't know where he was going. Uh, that man turned out to be Stan Rogers and we will forever be indebted to his ability to see artists and bring artists up uh, through what we call the folk world. Today, he is heading up what's called Home Roots, which has been done since the early part of the 20s and the 30s, but not so formally, with the ability to take artists across Canada, certainly, and Western Canada, and introduce them to an audience, thereby helping them to build themselves. Where I want to start here with Mitch, though, as I feel that to find the essence of a person, you have to start out in the things that you don't know. And in all of the bio-information, you never find out where Mitch started and the famous name of padolic Mr. Padolic. Tell me about where did you start? Oh, about... Youth, yeah, I want years, your youth. about uh, 15... Oh, blo- by the way, can I mention Mitch? Yeah. Keep it brief.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can give you a one-word one answer. I, I started 15 blocks from here. <laughs> I was born on Yorkville Avenue, which is in the old Mount Sinai Hospital, which is became Yorkville Village. And I grew up on Major Street, which is not too far from here, which was right next to the YMHA almost. And uh, the first time I heard, began to hear folk music was at summer camp at the Y-Ran. And uh, I remember finding a record cover of a, a Folkways album, Hootenanny, but it didn't have the record in it. But I remember being very frustrated at camp. And uh, my sis- we, we're, we came from a, a long hair family. We're a classical family. And my father played klezmer music in, in Poland and, uh, and again here. And he used to play that stuff, and I didn't know what it was. It sounded kind of weird to me. But my older sister Alice took me to see a fellow named Pete Seeger at Massey Hall when I was 13 years old and the next morning I was down at the Richmond Trading Post uh, which uh, used to exist here it was a great pawn shop and I traded a very 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 good clarinet for a very 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 shitty banjo (laughs) uh, so uh, folk music kind of started for me at summer camp and at that concert of Pete's and uh, I kind of never did anything else
2: after that when did the uh, world of uh, commerce versus art start for you? When was the first time you put on shows? I was uh, 16. And how much did you lose? And I lost money.
3: <laughs> I, I put, uh, I put uh, on, uh, I did three in a row, and I lost money on, on one of them. I did just up the block here is Eden I lost
4: money on all three. <laughs>
3: well, you're not Jewish, you know. Uh,
5: so, so
3: So, uh, the the first one was was up the street here, right on the corner of uh, of Young and College, is the old Eaton's store, and there was Eaton's Auditorium, and I brought the New Lost City Ramblers there when I was 16, and I lost everything I had, and everything I didn't have either. And then I brought Mike Seeger alone to the Bohemian Embassy for a weekend, which we didn't do in those days, but I did, and then I did Reverend Gary Davis, again, when I was (coughs) 16 or 17, and... And I kind of just sort of started there. I just started putting on shows because it was the only way I was going to get to know these people, and that was really kind of half of it. I only I wanted to learn how to play more, and uh, I wanted to know the people who were making the music, and it, it seemed to be the only easy way to do that, you know. So. I became a young promoter.
2: Now, uh, at what point, so we've, we've got the early beginnings there, um, we understand uh, that uh, you came from a European family out of Poland to Canada, uh, starting in the folk movement in the early part of the 60s. What part did you decide to pursue and end up in Winnipeg?
3: Okay, I have a, a
2: well. And please be kind, when did you buy long underwear? <laughs> I haven't.
3: <laughs> I don't find Winnipeg cold, it's fine. Um, I uh, at the same time as I got interested in PC, you know, you know, in those days, politics, revolutionary politics, socialist politics, the civil rights movement, particularly, were were very much part of the folk world. And so the other person I hooked into in my life besides Pete Deere was a fellow named Leon Trotsky. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He's kind of a nice fellow with a gun. I cane. knew you'd get there. Yeah. And kind of and the two of them together kind of became the two major influences in my life. And I joined the, the Trotskyist youth movement and then very quickly thereafter became an organizer and very quickly thereafter found myself first in Edmonton and then in Winnipeg and then in Halifax and then in Winnipeg again and and then in Vancouver. You know, just, it ended up being, I went where I was needed and, but Winnipeg kinda kinda struck some kind of real thing with me. I don't know, the first time I saw the prairies, I couldn't quite believe what I was looking at and I kinda fell in love with the place and uh, I still am in love with the prairies. I still like going out. one of my favorite moments was uh, there was this wonderful story with the Washington Squares. Do you remember them? People yes, remember them? Yes. Being driven in by a site, by a travel crew from the Winnipeg Folk Festival into town. And, and what's his name, who was the leader of that band? Tom, not Tom Goodkind, right? Saying out loud to everybody, Look, there's nothing out here. There's nothing out here. This is flat. This is empty. And the volunteer shuttle driver stopping and pulling over at the side, turning around and giving him a five-minute lecture about what was out here, you know. And everybody, when he finished everybody else in the van cheering, you know, kind of. But uh, the prairies have a certain charm that
2: nowhere else does, and I'm never going to live anywhere else. Is it true that uh, the reason you, you became one of the co founders of the Winnipeg Folk Festival is so, so you could actually book yourself to go on stage and play the no. banjo? <laughs> no, I have. So that's a fallacy. There's no. No, I,
3: I only ever played uh, once on the stage of the Winnipeg Folk Festival, and that was the last night of the last year I produced it. Right? And I thought I should just do that, but it was also raining. It shows
2: remarkable restraint, I think. (laughs) 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 Or kindness to the audience. Well, I'm a
3: banjo player, you know. know, There's a certain preordained thing that you're supposed to do if you're a banjo player. Anyway, yeah.
2: Um, When we look at uh, your career, career, one of it has been supporting many, many artists, and certainly I've mentioned the Stan Rogers support. What is it you feel? Uh, about the essence of the man, Stan Rogers, from when you met to what he still has created to this day? Well, he's left us
3: the best, I guess, almost anybody has. You know, it's a, it's a pile of songs and you hear people sing them and sometimes you hear them sung so terribly that you cringe and sometimes you hear them sung so beautifully that you
2: cry. And what uh. story from Stan... Oh. Can you tell us a funny story?
3: Well, I got, oh boy.
2: And don't name the names of the people around them, That's please. That's the problem. Uh, okay, the, the best story of Stan is my
3: son, Leonard. Some of you know my son, Leonard? So, okay, so when Leonard was about three years old, we were at the Owen Sound Folk Festival, and along came Stan, right? And he saw Leonard, and Stan in his big way, you know, Hiya, Leonard, and he picked him up, and Leonard said, sing a song for me. So holding Leonard, Stan sang Barrett's privateers and a, whole, and a whole crowd of people gathered around, right? And then when, the, when, the, uh, when he finished, there was applause and Leonard looked at him and said, can you sing Heart Like a Wheel? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: uh, uh, which to me is still the, the, almost the best moment. When you, You know, when, by the way, so I mentioned Stan Rogers, I mentioned certain aspects. There is no way what's happening here, we're going to cover in this two hours what these people represent. So, if I touch down on certain places, it's only to encourage you to go in that direction, to follow up on on the things that's available for you to look up online. When you discover artists, generally, what is it you first feel to them, whether you're booking them, promoting them, or telling them how to manage their career?
3: Well, you know... What does discovering artists mean? It, what it really means is running into somebody's music. And like, I'm just like everybody else. And I'm not like any, di- I'm not different from anybody because music is so subjective, you know? Either it speaks to you or it doesn't speak to you. And so I I discover the, only those artists who speak to me, you know? And I think that's true of, of everybody. I think that's true of everybody here, you know? and and. I think it's true of everybody here. <clears throat> the human thing is that you that you discover, either as an audience member or as a producer or whatever, what speaks to you as a human being and and, and boy, I in Home Roots we're getting two hundred submissions every eight weeks and we're sitting down and we are listening to every single one of them because that's the only principal thing to do with that stuff and and every once in a while, you got everybody in the room sitting there going, wow, listen to this young guy, or listen to this young girl, what a, what a great thing. And it's only that. It's only that subjective, undefinable thing, you know? You know he, he, there, there's writers who are great precise writers, and, and there are guitar players who are great precise guitar players, and sometimes they can't speak to anybody, you know? So what is the truth? The truth is what, what is there is what is there.
2: Every morning when you get up, you address the day, you have your pee. <laughs> <laughs> you walk out into the room, and you have to get through the rest of the day. What is it you tell yourself every day about what you do and who you are?
3: Oh, boy. I haven't done that for a while. Why? Because uh, I'm older, and I don't need to, <laughs> and I know who the hell I am. And, I, and I, don't, I don't I know who the hell I am now, you know, and uh, and I'm pretty satisfied with what I've done uh, in my life, I don't think anything. You know, I've created a couple festivals and, and a record company that, that exists still. And uh, um, I've my work my work accidentally has touched a lot of people, which I'm proud of. You know, I, I think that it, I think the most important thing that that what I've done has done is encouraged other people to pick up instruments and play music, and I think that's the most important thing. The whole concept of self-empowerment is, is important, but it's not what I think about in the morning. Mostly, I like to get up and have a dump, you know, make breakfast, you know, because that's kinda, As you, would. you know, because that's what you got to do in the morning. And I don't usually think of be great philosophical thoughts in the morning, you know. Bacon and eggs becomes, you know, fairly philosophical, you know, and, uh, and getting the ache out of my shoulder and, uh, and going to work and, uh, and working with a bunch of young people, which I do, which I really like. You know, I, I've I managed this young man named Tim Osmond, who I work with, who, uh, who is now the artistic director of, of Home Roots and the best thing, it was the best transition I was ever in an organization because I said, Tim, uh, do you think you're ready to be artistic director? And he said, oh yeah, I, I can probably do it. When do you want to do that change, Mitch? And I said, how about five minutes from now? <laughs> and, and that was the change, and that was the transition, and that was because because you take the, if you're smart, you take the skills that you have and you try to pass them on to whatever degree you possibly can, knowing that it ain't going to be perfect. You know, I uh, I um, I'm I'm uh, the founder of the Winnipeg Folk Festival, and the Winnipeg Folk Festival is, in my view, organizationally one of the most sweet, beautiful organizations that you ever see, but I don't like the show the last three or four years, right? So that that's a subjective call, right? And and making that kind of subjective call is really, is A, it's hard on me to do that because I feel loyalty to the place. But on the other hand, you know, I really like going to the Stan Rogers Folk Festival, you know, because you go to the Stan Rogers Folk Festival, you hear folk music. <laughs> Um, and, and I like to hear folk music. I, know I, won't, I don't want to hear shit pop, you know, and I'm just <laughs> not there. And so, uh, does, that I, make me, does that make me feel disappointed about the Winnipeg Folk Festival Not in your life because it's a great organization,
2: you know? One so. of the things about the people on this stage is uh, they have, in their time, uh, placed their opinion forward. Uh, and have been uh, in some cases, not in all cases there's people that do it very eloquently Uh, Mitch Mm. when was the last time you put your foot in your mouth and how how, how, how did you extract it? Should you, and I know it's a rare case have been wrong?
3: I put my foot in my mouth yesterday morning (laughs) and I didn't extract it because I like it right where it is (laughs) and I said, uh, I said some of the same things about the Winnipeg Folk Festival and the new executive director and president were sitting there. And I didn't know them. <laughs> and they came up afterwards, and we had a very nice, important couple-hour conversation you know, about the future of the Winnipeg Folk Festival. I have decided pretty much that I'm, I hit 65, and I decided that that's the line beyond which uh, the politics of what you think disappear. Right, I'm too old to be polite about shit, and I think, and I think it's just uh, no point in that. You know, I think fuck diplomacy. You know, there's nothing as good as the truth. You know,
2: there's nothing as good as that. So. And let me just point out to you, this is the end of our 15 minutes with Mitch. <laughs> um, we will hand this over to Sonny. Um, Mitch will probably elaborate. <laughs> At your convenience, when you get to ask him questions, do not hold back. Sonny?
1: And now for something (laughs) completely
2: different. (laughs) And never once did Sylvia's elbows ever get to Mitch. I, I was watching.
1: Well, when I knew I was going to do this, I went to my LP collection, and I discovered, much to my amazement, that I had seven Ian and Sylvia albums. And I do a radio show and I took the first album to the radio show and I played the first song from that first album on my show and that song was Rocks and Gravel Mm -hmm. and uh, I've been a fan of Ian and Sylvia since I can remember and that's all I ever thought of was Ian and Sylvia But having done research, I am just absolutely amazed I'm going to touch on a few things here Sylvia and then come back and try to get more specific Their first gigs were at the Village Corner Club, which is here in Toronto. Was, thank you Richard. Okay, uh, they started out as Ian and Sylvia. They became Great Speckled Bird, and that was the beginning of Country Rock. They were actually kind of the founders or helping to found the, the concept of Country Rock. And then Sylvia actually hosted a radio show that was produced by Paul Mills and Bill Garrett. And that ran for five years, and it was called Touch the Earth. She did interviews, right? And then for the last 20 years, she's been in a group of women's quartet called, called Quartet. So she's still doing the music. And la- uh, she's won the, she has been awarded the Order of Canada, which is not too shabby. You can applaud for that one. <laughs> She's one of the founders and past president of the Juno Awards Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. And in her spare time recently, since she had nothing much to do, she wrote a novel, which is called Joiner's Dream. And we'll ask her a little bit about that as well. So let's kind of work chronologically. Does that work sure, best for you, Sylvia? Sure, go ahead on. Sylvia. Okay, well, I'd like to hear about the early days, the Village Corner Club and what it was like when things were starting around here.
6: I uh, moved to Toronto from Chatham, Ontario in 1959. And uh, the reason I had moved here is because I had already met Ian. I'd made a couple of trips. I was always pretty calculating in what I did. And... uh, (laughs) I had met Ian on a trip to Toronto just to see what was happening in the folk scene. I was already interested in folk music at that point, mainly from books because I didn't have access to to records or live performances. Could Uh, you talk
1: about your parents and how that leads into what you're saying now?
6: Well, uh, both my parents were musical. Uh, my mother was trained as a classical pianist. Her specialty was Chopin, and she was an organist and choir leader, so you can imagine where I spent a large part of my young life, in the choir stalls, singing alto. We always had more sopranos than so we knew what to do with. <laughs> and if the tenor didn't show up, I'd sing tenor. <laughs> uh, but it was great early training. My dad uh, played by ear. Uh, he uh, sold musical instruments uh, for the Tea Eaton Company and the two of them met in a very romantic way. They met when they were piano and sheet music demonstrators for the Tea Eaton Company in London, Ontario. <laughs> so uh, yes, I, I moved to Toronto, got myself a job in a place called the Starlight Stores which sold questionable clothes to questionable ladies. <laughs> <laughs> But got fired because I couldn't figure out how to run the cash register. <laughs> and uh, at that time in Toronto, early, early 60s, there were actually more places to play than there were people to play in them. So finding work wasn't hard. It wasn't that it paid you much, but it paid you a little bit. And there was you could work every night of the week if you wanted to. And... Uh, and I did, and we did, Ian and I did form a duo. We uh, we introduced a, a new concept to the folk scene in those early, early days. We rehearsed a lot. <laughs> 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 um, and uh, the Village Corner Club was uh, one of the first places we played. I had a standing um, uh, gig that was uh, a Poetry Night at the Bohemian Embassy. I was the only musical performer on that night, uh, along with such luminaries as uh, Margaret Atwood and Milton Acorn and, and Raymond Souster. And, you know, it was quite a, quite a heady experience. As a matter of fact, my first night performing Poetry Night at Bohemian Embassy, I felt so outclassed that I decided to do all 16 verses of Woody Guthrie's Ballad of Tom Joad. <laughs> <laughs> which I've never done since, and I don't remember a word of it. (laughs) Um, And uh, so at a certain point, I I guess Ian and I became the Kansas City Stars in, in Toronto and decided it was time to hit the big time.
1: Okay, and then you went to the other village, the one in New York, Greenwich Village. Yes. And what was that like? I, I also want to put in context the time that you were out there. You were one of the few women. It was such a male-dominated uh, scene.
6: It was It was very male-dominated. Certainly when I got to New York, there were others. There was Carolyn Hester and, and uh, Judy Collins, um, to, to name a couple, and of course Maria Mulder. Uh, but there weren't a lot of women and and so uh it was a kind of a, a tight world for me one of my dearest friends uh in in new york was uh susie Rodelo, who was uh, going out with bob dylan at that point and we reconnected at a later date unfortunately we lost her a couple of years back it was just very sad for me but there weren't a lot of women to, to relate to in in the folk scene Partly because there weren't very many of us and partly because we were like ships in the night. We were on the road all the time. And if we saw each other, it was probably in an airport somewhere. You know, uh, if uh, um, there was a standard thing about about playing clubs in New York, they always figured if you were in New York, it was because you weren't working. (laughs) And they didn't want to pay you very much. So (laughs) we didn't actually play that much in New
1: York. Oh, really? But you did travel around the states a
6: lot. Uh, we um, when we went to Toronto again, it was, was planned ahead of time. I'm a Virgo, what can I say? Um, a, a friend of ours, uh, Ed Cowan, went down to New York with us. He'd done a, kind of some research on who was in the management business in New York at that time, and the first name he had in his list was Albert Grossman. And so we went without uh, any uh, preamble to, into Albert Grossman's office that he shared with George Wien. Uh, who and and they were uh, involved in in Newport Jazz Festival at that point the Newport Folk Festival was a, just a gleam in somebody's eye at that point and uh, um, so we auditioned for Albert right in the middle of the floor of this enormous office he had on Central Park West it was a former mansion of some kind and uh He listened to us and said that he really liked us, but he just signed this trio and he didn't know how much time he was going to have for us. That was Peter Palamiri, of course. Uh, But we assured him that we were Canadians and pretty low maintenance, so he (laughs) he took us on.
1: (laughs) I want to know about the uh, great speckled uh, bird. How did that come about? Why did it come about? Uh, the Great Bird came about
6: because Ian and I had, had done a number of records and we'd sort of dabbled with the, a pop sound which we which wasn't very successful and we didn't enjoy it very much either. And uh, all, both of us had been drawn to um, country music as well as folk music. Main, me mainly because I had always been um, so in love with Appalachian music. Um, and We had a a contractual conflict with Vanguard Records. We wanted to go with with another label. Uh, The Vanguard contract at that time was quite ambiguous, and when you read through it, it it meant either that we'd given them one album too many or that we owed them another one. And... uh, so they decided it meant we owed them another one, but they decided, too, that, that they would release us to do an album for this other label, thinking, I suppose, that if that was successful, they'd still get another album out of us. Um, and what we decided to do was to go to Nashville. Not to do a straight country album, but because there were so many great players. There and so many people whose music we respected, and we certainly got to play with a lot of them. We got to try out a lot of the studios. We got to go into the old RCA studio that Elvis was in, you know. It just just basically uh, a shopping trip for us, which was was quite uh, quite successful, and. Um, uh, that was the beginning, really, of the of the country rock thing. And we decided, having done that album, we kind of took a year off after we did that album, because we were not quite sure what we wanted to do. And we did, what we basically decided was that we didn't want to go on the road if we could not make the same kind of music from the stage that we had done on that album. And that was when we formed the Great Speckled Bird.
1: Okay. And I also noticed on your early albums, I was really surprised. To see one of your backup uh, guitarists was uh, John Harold from the Greenbrier Boys. Yes, John played on
6: on uh, two or three of our early albums. Um, there was a. Uh, How did you meet him? Well, we were in the village, hanging out in the village, and 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 uh, the Greenbrier Boys. We we were good friends with all of those guys, as we were with most of the players, bluegrass and and uh, traditional players, and. Uh, we just loved the way he played, that, that kind of very driving, percussive, flat-top playing. And and uh, um, it caused some problems for John, actually, because John uh, was a very meticulous player who, who very carefully worked out everything that he played, and we used to send him a tape six months ahead of doing an album, and he would very carefully work out what he was going to play on it, and... and uh, so when the albums came out, everybody heard this marvelous picking and wanted to hire John Harrell to do their recording sessions, and uh, he, he kept saying, I can't do it unless you give me time to do it. I think they just expected him to rip off those licks, you know, easily, and, and it never was easy for John. Great player, but a hard, hard worker.
1: Okay, and now let's go to the radio show, Touch the Earth. Yes. Did you enjoy that? You did it for five years, I believe.
6: Yes, I think I might still be doing it, actually, if uh, CBC hadn't decided to, to get a new broom. Oh, really? Um, but certainly people still talk to me as if that show were on yesterday. It, it really seemed to touch a chord with people. One of the things I was very pleased about was that we were in right at the beginning of the home so-called homemade albums. And uh, uh, one thing the show gave us leeway to do was to in effect advertise those albums so when Stan Rogers came out with an album we were able to give him give give people his mum's address mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and they could order his albums and it also meant that I uh, um, see Paul uh, in the audience uh, probably uh, can back me up on this but I think that we almost single-handedly created the uh, the uh, homemade record or, or independent record part of uh, the business at that stage in Canada. And I'm very, very proud that we did that. Also, it, it enabled people all over the country to hear artists from parts of the country they would never have heard from otherwise and, and created careers, I think, for quite a lot of people. I don't know if you... Would agree with
1: that or not mm-hmm. yeah okay uh, this is your chance to have a brief plug for your new book mm-hmm. joiners dream want to know a little bit about the book
6: uh, well joiners dream is in the form of a, a journal that's kept by one member of a family from of each generation from 1790 to the present day starts in England in 1790 moves to Canada about the time of the First World War and uh, it's a kind of a secret journal even within the family because it's, it's kept by the member of the family that is most like the previous one and not all of their activities are uh, credible or even honest. Uh, they are also uh, musicians, traditional musicians. There's a fiddle that's handed down in the family called Old Nick and uh, so it's... Um, it's a saga, is what it is.
1: <laughs> and finally, I'm going to ask you to please give us a sample of your beautiful singing ability. Oh, my.
6: Well, I, I didn't feel up to, to singing and playing, but I, I can do a bit of a song. I have to... I have to... <laughs> as part of being an elder is to... <laughs> Uh, This is a song that I I wrote for the most recent quartet album, and I think it kind of leans on some of the traditional stuff that that I developed with. And now it's called 20 Shades of Blue. I want you to know this much preceded (laughs) Fifty Shades of Grey. Babe, I swear, there's an artist in you. You painted my love 20 shades of blue, and I don't wanna be your canvas no more. I ain't gonna be your canvas no more. No, never, no more. My life used to be like a bright sunny day you painted it over in shades of gray and i don't wanna be your canvas no more i ain't gonna be your canvas no more no never no more let me spell it out for you in black and white The way that you treat me just ain't right. And I don't want to be your canvas no more. I ain't going to be your canvas no more. No, never, no more. You want to change my religion, change my name. Fit me into your picture frame But I don't wanna be your canvas no more I ain't gonna be your canvas no more No, never, no more I'll tell you something straight from my heart I never will be your work of art Cause I don't wanna be your canvas no more I ain't gonna be your canvas no more No, never, no more Cause babe, I swear There's an artist in you You painted my love when these shades of blue and I don't wanna be your canvas no more, I ain't gonna be your canvas no more, no never no more, no never no more, no never no more. No, never, no more.
1: Thank you, Sylvia, it's beautiful. You'll get a chance to say more later. Now we're gonna go back to Tom.
2: I need a few moments from that, don't you? Uh, Pretty amazing. Richard, Richard Flohill. (coughs) Richard, like Mitch and I, have sat backstage on a number of occasions. Never, never have we asked personal questions. I've had the fortune or misfortune to have Richard stay with me uh, this past summer.
4: And I'm, I'm going to come back, too, <laughs> if you'll have me.
2: It took me three days to get over the sight of him in his bathrobe. <laughs> Having peanut butter in my house and being very concise and specific of the type of Scotch whiskey I was to serve him every day at noon. He rifled through my entire record collection. And by the way, he was wearing a house coat. Did, did I mention that? Because there's no bloody way I was going to frisk him to see if he was taking anything out. That's too much information. I know, I'm already (laughs) heading in the wrong direction there. I did feel some guilt and made sure that his week, which was filled with listening to Duke Ellington, was fully fulfilled by, he hinted how much he loved the collection I had. So it rests at his home now, so that he can listen to the Duke Ellington. A man that started off in England, coming to Canada in 1957. Uh, a junior reporter. He could have been a sports reporter, you know. He could have been a political commentator. So many things that he could have been, but he ended up in the world as a publicist, artist manager, uh, a festival director, um, putting together, working with a number of festival organizations throughout the world. Writer, certainly a as everybody will know, uh, and some would say a musical visionary. He, like the people on this stage, treats his art of being a publicist and a supporter of youth and people who are in all music genres as being the art of making sure that music gets out there into the public. Tom, (laughs) I'm blushing. Yeah, I've seen you blush. uh, Pull up your host coat tight (laughs) as to not to frighten the little children in the audience. (laughs) Richard, you come to Canada in 1957, and here you land uh, did you not think at that time for a moment that there was a bit of a wasteland here in Toronto from your cultural iconistic view of listening to all the jazz greats you, you in have England?
4: no idea how incredibly dull Toronto was. The second tallest building was the Royal York Hotel. Uh, I stayed, uh, well, I came in via New York and I was... Dog tired, and I, the Canadian immigration guy said, "Oh, how's the Lonsborough Hotel?" And he mentioned the pub that I used to drink in in my home, small hometown in England. Turned out he'd he'd um, been stationed there in, in the war. So I said, "Where should I stay?" And he said, "The Ford Hotel." Ford Hotel doesn't exist anymore, but it's where that black glass building called the atrium was. There were three towers, and it was full of questionable ladies and grumbling Englishmen. I'm a pipe fitter, and the best thing they've offered me is pipe welding. Well, booger that for a game of soldiers. you know. And the entertainment was, I swear, Lloyd Burry and his fabulous organ actually, he played in the grotto. So I came here because um, they wouldn't let me in the States because I didn't know whether my grandmother had been a communist. That was a big deal for them in in the 50s. And um, the first night in Canada, I wandered down Yonge Street and I saw this sign. It said, Earl Hines and his all-stars. I went, my God. So I went in the in the bar. It was in the afternoon. I said, Earl Heinz, yeah. The guy that played with Louis Armstrong in the 20s and had a big band in the 40s, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, how much is it to get in? He said, it's free, but you have to drink two beers. (laughs) I thought this might be the promised land. (laughs) Ah, yes, and still today
2: you can tempt him with two beers. Yes. (laughs) Richard uh, when did the left turn right turn of a career happen where you went from getting a job as a regular wage and then deciding that you know maybe I can do a lot of this on my own
4: well it took some time I I couldn't get a job as a newspaper reporter which is what I'd been doing in England uh, from the age of 16 on and i wound up editing trade magazines you know like the first magazine i worked on was called electrical contracting and maintenance in canada and all i know about electricity is you don't put two fingers in the socket at the same time <laughs> so you, you you just learn the language of the trade and then you carry on um i was really a blues fan and i i i used to go down to chicago and i wanted to meet muddy waters and i did And I heard Howling Wolf in the worst club in the world. Oh, what a toilet that place was. I heard, and you can be killed if you're the wrong shade of pink at the wrong time of night in the wrong part of town in Chicago. So I thought after a while, I'd bring these people to Canada and they would be safe. And so I brought, I'm proud to say that I'm responsible for bringing, for the first time they'd ever played in Canada. Muddy Waters, Buddy Guy, B.B. King, Bobby Bland, Robert Nighthawk, Sleepy John Estes, all this. So I get this rap as a blues maven, and then I get invited to a folk festival. What the hell is that? So I went to host a blues workshop. And that weekend, I heard your brother, uh, Gordon Lightfoot, who I did know before, Ian and Sylvia, uh, I still wear cowboy boots all the time because Ian did, and I thought they were really cool. Um, and I don't have anything else. Um, who else was on that show? Leonard Cohen? Uh, 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 Buffy? And it was like being hit on the head with an apple. There was all this music I had no familiarity really with at all. And um, I guess I'd been a born folky stuff. I still like blues, big time.
2: Richard is also in the process of putting a book out. He is asking for donations. No,
4: I've got the donations.
2: Okay. Uh, anybody that doesn't want to be mentioned in the book, you can double your donation. Okay, and we, we know that that's a, We have uh, such wealth of information here. I'm going to ask Richard now to touch down on three, quickly, events that you think were turning points either with artists or in your career and let's just take it up to the 80s so we're looking at the 60s 70s tell oh. me about the things that you think made you as the person you are today starting at that point I
4: don't know why yeah, I, I realize am. where I... I'm st- I realize where I'm going here well uh, one event was my my that I just mentioned was going to Mariposa in 1965 and just having my mind altered um, I did a great show at Massey Hall in 1970, I think. One of the things about growing old is I I, I remember stuff okay, but I don't remember when it was. Um, And I did this show at Massey Hall with Bobby Blue Bland, Buddy Guy, and what turned out to be the last performance, or almost the last performance, of a wonderful guitar player called Lonnie Johnson, who lived in Toronto at that time. And I lost $1,200 that I didn't have, and I quit smoking the next morning. And I was doing two and a half packs a day since I was 16. So the fact that I am alive today, I owe to that one. And every time I see Bobby Bland, I thank him. (laughs) Because if I'd have made money, I'd be dead now. I can't think of any, yes, I can. Um, The one thing I am sort of proud of is um, helping young artists get started and I was very fortunate enough to work with people like Katie Lang, Serena Ryder, Arne DeFranco, uh, Lorena McKennett who I still work with 26 years later there's loyalty um, and a whole bunch of others that I work with now who you may not have heard of, but you should. And you will. And you will, yeah. Um, a woman in Montreal called Alejandra Rivera. I, I think this woman is just amazing. You've got to hear a young girl, she's 22 now, but when I first heard her, she was 17, and she bearded me in, in a corridor and said, I know who you are, I wanna play this song. And she pinned me against the wall and played a song about how to be a model. You've got to be very tall. You've got to be very thin. You've got to be blonde. You've got to eat really fast, and then you've got to throw up. (laughs) And I thought, the kid's 17, and she's writing songs about this? Her name name is Ariana Gillis, and you've got to check her out. She's here. She is here, and she is... uh, when I started working with Katie Lang, I knew, I knew this was going to happen. And I am equally certain um, about Ariana. Sorry, I, I rambled. That's around. all right. I expected that. <laughs> yeah, right. You're
1: Richard Flohill, That's
4: what you Here's do. Here's the thing,
2: and we won't allow him to go to three because that'll put us to <laughs> I four can't this think. afternoon. <laughs> Richard, what is it that you feel when you see one of these artists? You know there's something there. You know that they have it, and you know that you have to forsake commerce for art. Uh, well, what, what, what is it that makes the. I the don't hair know of the what it is. When
4: I, when I uh, work with somebody as a publicist, as a whatever, first of all, I won't work with anybody whose music I don't like or who I don't like personally. I worked with Nana Muscuri. I wouldn't cross the road to hear her sing with <laughs> all God blessings, and she covered a couple of Sylvia songs, like that. But of all the wonderful, feisty, on-the-money broads I've ever met, Nana Muscuri is it. Um, what I look for is, yes, you spot the it, whatever it is. I heard it with, with Lorena, I heard it with Ariana, I heard it with all sorts of people. But then what you have to find Is other stuff which is as important as the talent and I think Mitch began to touch on this a bit Uh, very un-Canadian quality are they ambitious are they focused are they going for it are they working hard are they prepared to give up some of the things that we sort of think are important relationships and (laughs) friendships with your (laughs) folks and all that shit because if that is in place and the talent is there it, it will happen and there's so many variants um, I look for a distinctive voice I work with a, a young woman who actually she was my assistant for two years called Jada Kelly Jada has a voice that will break your bloody heart it, it's, it's it's a special voice I work with um, two girls who call themselves Scarlet Jane, Andrea Ramelow and Cindy Dwyer, and and I called them the Everly sisters when I first heard them. Um, but they're going for it, and they will succeed. Yes, there's luck, there's, and good people working with you, and all that stuff, but the ambition, and the focus, and the energy are, are equal, have to be equal to the talent.
2: You're in a business where, um, as the world changes, people move on, people come back. You've seen so many changes in the publicity world and, and putting artists on stage. In those changes can happen disappointment. And with that disappointment, you have to deal with it. And many of us in the room have had to deal with a lot of disappointment in our lives, but your business is supporting an artist. How do you deal with that? And can you give us an example? When of... you
4: get fired, do you mean? You get your
2: ass fired. <laughs> you get your ass fired. Yeah, that's that's basically what it comes down to. Um, I mean, you know, do you go, ho, ho, ha, ha, I'm moving on? No, or yes. How, 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 do you, how do you deal with that? Because we all are looking for the secret way of understanding that.
4: Well, I just got fired a couple of weeks ago by Matt Anderson, who's a brilliant guitarist, um, amazing talent and somebody who i really like as a person although he's not a good communicator and he fired his manager after eight years and me as his publicist after two shit happens you move forward you go on um and i think the one thing i've learned if this well the main thing i've learned is that i have less and less time to do all the stuff that I had in mind to do, and bit by bit. Although I'm I'm very fond of a quote of an English guy called Les Barker. I don't know (laughs) anybody knows. But his great line that I love, there's two lines. One, one, he says, I'm going to live forever. So far, I'm doing very well. (laughs) The other line I like was from John Lee Hooker, who said, at 82, it's too late to quit now. <laughs> and that's my philosophy.
2: <laughs> We've just got a couple more questions and then we'll move on, okay, Sonny? Um, again, uh, with, with such uh, a career here, you have seen a number of, of uh, the guiding lights uh, move on uh, to that other plane, wherever that may be, whatever you believe. Wolf, Muddy Waters, Jeff Healy what what do what do these people leave behind f- for you is there uh, a thread that you can share with us about the great talents and uh, the the things that still affect you every single day as you move forward
4: well I, ju- I loved I Jeff Healy and if anybody doesn't know his work you, you should find me funny and when he died we all knew he was going to pass and I was the publicist and I had the obit written and his friend called me up from the hospital and says he's gone, we better. So I just filled in the blanks, you know, when and where and so on. And I sent it out to my list of, I don't know, probably a couple of thousand email addresses. And I said, right, now I'm going to the bar and I'm gonna get drunk. And then the response came back. I worked till four o'clock that night just with the people who he had touched. And there's so many, you know, we have this time here on earth and the heroes, the ones who've done it right. uh, And either they die tragically or they die of old age or they die of, I don't know. And they pass on and it sobers you because it reminds you yet again that we are mortal and that. I, I, I don't like this wisdom of the elders, because based on the fact, I think, if I may <laughs> say so, that just because you're old, you're wise. Uh, <laughs> I only
1: chose wise elders, <laughs> I thought.
4: Um. I think the other thing, very briefly, i think the other thing briefly that you that has changed in all our lives is the arrival of the of the computer and the internet and all of that and it's changed everything incredibly drastically and it's it's a constant battle as we grow older to keep caught up with it i understand ian now has a cell phone (laughs) amazing He 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 doesn't have an email address. I know, and he doesn't have a computer, does he? There you go.
2: Um, Now, he
4: is a year older than me, so it's okay.
2: We're going to finish off now with one more question. We already certainly know that Sylvia Tyson can sing. That was absolutely amazing. Uh, Mr. Mitch Podolik has performed on the stage of the Winnipeg Folk Festival with his banjo, or singing at least. Richard, as a publicist, you seem to be the most mythical of artists uh, because nobody's ever quite sure what you do from what I hear from time to time. If there was a song that you were going to sing, what would that song be? And can you give us a verse?
4: The answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) Very briefly, when God made me, she said, you will be able... You, you won't be able to sing, you won't be able to dance, you won't be able to play an instrument, you can talk your face off. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen,
2: Richard Flohill without his housecoat.
1: <laughs> right, before we go to round two, which is going to be the free for oh, yes. I must... I was asked by Lewis mm-hmm. to give this to Sylvia, and it's the 2013 Spirit of Folk Award, which is being right. awarded to Sylvia Tyson.
4: Yes. Yeah. Well, raise your hand.
6: Thank you very much. This is totally unexpected, and- and a great pleasure <laughs> you earned it
1: <laughs> okay let's first thing I want to do is have you the three of you in whatever order and you can join each other you all started way back like in the 60s or thereabouts in the music field and now we're in 2010s. and teens how how is it different the uh, the business end of it, the fun end of it, I hope there's still fun end of it, the way things are operating, the way things get done or don't. Would you rather be functioning today or back then if you had your choice? And- uh, I think I was very fortunate to to start when I did.
6: I think it's extremely tough right now. Boy, you have to be fast on your feet. And you really, aside from talent, which you have to have in spades, you you have to, have so much technical knowledge, and uh, also a, a sense of, of of where definitely a sense of where you want to go and how you want to get there, and you really have to plot it out. Um, when Ian and I were starting out, Albert Grossman sat us down and and uh, said, "I'm going to tell you one thing about the music business, and that is that a lot of artists." think that they shouldn't have to be bothered with the nastiness of the business side of things. And all I can tell you is, if you don't, there's gonna be somebody who's only too happy to do it and you may not be happy with how they do it. And if you're not
4: involved in the business of what you do,
6: then you're in the wrong business. (laughs)
4: Can I add to to that, it's a wonderful saying. There's a a bad English, actually not bad, they're a pretty good English rock band called Status Quo. They've been going forever. Mm Um, And the leader, uh, Francis Rossi, has this great line, I don't want to hear any complaints or whining about the music business. I understand you chose this profession. (laughs) What the fuck do you want to do? Drive an ice cream van? (laughs) Well, I I get, we
3: get, uh, like I said earlier, at Home Roots, we're getting about 200... 200 submissions every eight weeks and an awful lot of them are good you know and so I end up talking to here too at this event every year in OCFF people come up and say you know tell me what do I do next and that's that question what do I do next and the only logical reasonable answer to tell any young performer if they have the chops if they got it you know if you your instinct says, Yeah, this person could potentially do it is go find a publicist. I mean, <laughs> I'm busy. <laughs> and in Canada, he's busy. And it's,
6: and it's, but, but you can always put him up against the wall and sing to it. <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, I mean it's the real the real problem for an artist is to to create some sense of mystification about who they are or who she you know. And without that kind of professional kind of Help people are in trouble. we don't have enough people like Richard with those kind of skills and kind of I've actually talked to governments about this and said, "Why don't you hire Richard to teach people you know and they don't understand and you know there's a real there's a real there's a real lack of problems so with all the the computer gear and all the instant messaging shit that exists and I don't have one of those machines, and uh, I'm a Luddite, and I like it that way. But with all that stuff existing, it still isn't good if you can't spin a good yarn. And that's part of, what, part of the problem that we have as a, as a community, is learning how to spin a good yarn. And how, you know, why somebody, why should you go see you know, Chaim Schmidt, who you've never heard before, right? And, and there's no reason. Yeah, you, can, you can see it here. You can even see it here in terms of how the showcases work upstairs on the, on, the, on the three floors and you walk down the halls and there's rooms where that are absolutely packed and there's rooms where one person with a guitar is sitting there. It's because word of that person, even in this community, hasn't gotten around. And so it, we have problems and we need to learn how to deal with those things, I think.
4: I, I'd like to add something very quick to that. I think this event, <laughs> has in a sense grown too large. There are two, and and it's a mystery I can't understand. As the barriers, as the bar becomes higher and higher, as Sylvia said, when when she began, it, it wasn't a clear field, but now, as it's harder and harder and harder to get a career going, to gain traction, there are more and more and more artists than there ever were before, ever.
3: Good ones. Trying yes. yeah. for it.
4: Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's changed what we regarded as success. I think, uh, I, I can't speak for Silver, but I think in those days you thought if I really work hard, I can maybe get a record deal, I can find a good team, I can find an Albert Grossman, uh, you know, and, and, and build something and now it's harder and harder and harder to do that and the and the benchmark of success for far 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 too many people is I'm not working at Starbucks
6: I think another problem is that in, in Canada certainly uh, there isn't the infrastructure that there is probably in the United States and um, and that there aren't that many Mitch Podolics and Richard Flohills available. <laughs> and th- and they, are, they are stretched pretty thin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, certainly uh, all of the money that in the past, not necessarily right now, but in the past has been put into developing a music industry. A lot of it should have gone into development of management and, and agency mm, yep. and, and publicists. publicists. Yep. Uh, none of it really did and you know if a young artist find generally what a young artist will do now is find some contemporary that is willing to partner with them to to work and and it's a learning curve for both of them
3: I think I know a couple people who who I can't say what city they live in (laughs) and I can't say their names but they're two artists and they've rented a room and they put in two computers and, and, a, and a fax machine, and they're a pretend agency. And what they do is they represent each other and they both use phony names representing each other, right? And it's a, it's a functional technique. They both put about 30 hours a week into each other. It's a really ridiculous situation, but it... You gotta but, uh, do
4: what you gotta do. You gotta do what you gotta do, and it
2: works, you know?
3: It,
2: I'm proud of those guys. Uh, I'm going to try something here off the cuff. Oh God, don't do that, Tom. Yes, you can do that. Um, We have three people who have known each other for a long time, whose careers have intertwined, who have, uh, during that period of time, probably had questions they've asked, wanted to ask one or the other. (laughs) (laughs) Sylvia. You guided me so much during the Touch the Earth years and through your career. I know you are an expert interviewer. What would you like to ask Richard?
4: Uh, oh. Tell me about Lonnie Johnson. Oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. I went to his funeral. It was the last, last dead body I saw in a, co- in a coffin. Oh.
1: Oh.
4: Um, he was a lovely gentleman, and my best memory of him was getting a call at my suburban house then from B.B. King. He said, do you know where Lonnie Johnson is? And I said, because I've never met him. And he's the one guitarist, was, along with Charlie Christian, actually, who who'd changed his, his guitar playing life. And I said, well, I'll, I'll make a call. So I called Howard Matthews, who was married to one of the pioneers of the blues scene in Canada, a woman called Salome Bay. And I said, do you know where, where, where Lonnie Johnson is? And he said, yeah. I said, well, where is he? He says, he's in my kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, can I bring B.B. King down to meet him? And he said, yep, sure. So I drove downtown in my rusty Toyota and I picked up B.B. King in a hotel called the Lord Simcoe, which doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, well, I, I took stop. him to Howard's house, which is not that far from here, or was never. And I walked B.B. King into the kitchen, and there was indeed Lonnie Johnson and Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. And everyone said, What did they talk about? I said, It's not for me to be in that room. Make the introductions bugger off. <laughs> so I don't know what they talked about. Wow. I loved Lonnie Johnson. He was a wonderful guy. I first heard him in England in 5, something like that. They let him into England to sing. And he would confound everybody because everybody thought he's black, he must be a blues singer. And he would do My Mother's Eyes. Do you remember that song? The most appalling, lachrymose piece of crap you ever. Right up there with Danny Boy. Um, And and people just, and then he'd sing Jelly Roll Baker. Woo. (laughs) So he was a lovely gentleman and he lived the last, what, five years of his life here? Had a little club that not many people went to. He was he a good recorded a couple of albums too, didn't he? Yes. A great Here. album. We can't find it for love no money with a jazz band. And he plays a guitar solo on, <laughs> on China Fro-Kruz, Boy. On
2: Folk Roots next week on CKUA. Oh. You can listen to it.
4: <laughs> Version of Ch- it. The guitar it. solo yep. on China Boy is like, whoa, where did that come from? What a great player he was. He recorded with Armstrong. He recorded with Ellington. He had hits in the 40s. He had a long career. Mark Miller has written a book about him, a short book, um, and I think somewhere in the program, there's a, there's a little thing with, which Mark is doing about Lonnie Johnson. He was one of the most influential guitar players in, in American music history, yeah. there. <laughs> I
6: have to tell you that this Christmas with, with the family and, and friends, normally I play a little classical music in the background, but my son came up to me and said, we're all falling asleep listening to this. Put on something else. So I, I put on a collection of Joe Venuti, Eddie Lang, Lonnie Johnson, oh, oh. and the whole place went up for grabs. <laughs> yeah. Wow.
2: Mitch Badalik, what would you ask Sylvia Tyson?
3: You know, when I I first started hearing you guys play, you used to play the auto harp. I did. And why don't you do that?
6: Have you ever tried to tune an auto harp? (laughs) 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 The last time I played the auto harp was uh, Mariposa uh, had a a little reunion show with us at at Hughes Room. And we did, uh, when first unto this country a stranger, I came, the Mike Seeger tune. And I had not had the auto harp out of its case for years, and I promised it that night, that if it would stay in tune that night, I wouldn't pick it up for another 30 years.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it was too bad. It was good. Well, at least you didn't play the hurdy-gurdy.
5: <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, you have a real solid bass in traditional music, you know, and I said.: I love the sound of it. I lo- if if were... there was one that
6: I could keep in tune, I would be everlasting. You can weld them in place, you know. <laughs> but you have to be very accurate when you do it.
2: <laughs> Richard, the third question falls to you, and you can either pick Mitch Podolik or Sylvia Tyson to ask that question of.
1: <laughs>
4: can I pass? I can't believe he's silent. <laughs> can I, can, yeah. Sonny said when she's going to sit next to me, and if I talk too much, <laughs> she'd poke me. Well, she hasn't poked me yet. But, so I, I'd, I'd like to pass on this one. You're gonna
2: pass on this one. Well, you have the right to do that, sir. Yeah, thank
4: you. Sunny, what would you like to do
2: next? Throw it to the audience?
1: Yeah. Maybe we should take an audience break. If you want to ask a question, there's a microphone right there. Just go on up to the mic and just tell us your name, where you're from, and what your question is. Uh, my name's Linda McCray. I'm originally from Vancouver Island and I'm living in Tennessee now. And I wanted to ask Sylvia, you mentioned you're into a lot Appalachian music. Uh, and I was wondering who some of your early influences were on people in the Appalachian world. Well,
6: uh, Ritchie, of course, um, Carter family, definitely Carter family were a huge influence on me, especially Maybelle Carter, um, and, and the daughters too, who I think are all wonderful singers. I think Anita Carter is one of the best singers I've ever heard. Mm a lot of the early um, uh, bluegrass and uh, and old-timey music.
1: Right. Was there any of that kind of music that was co- actually coming out of Canada, at all? Was there was anyone? Well, I guess the, not really. They there were bluegrass really bands,
6: a... but but uh, it, it was all very early in the learning curve for bluegrass right. for, for Canadians at that right. point. Okay.
1: Thank you. Next. Name, location,
5: and question. David Burns, Beacon, New York. Hi, Sonny. We've heard a lot today about the advice you give to young talent, you know, that they have to have the chops, but also the focus and the drive. I would be interested in finding out what advice you would give to young people who are thinking of becoming publicists such as yourself. Well, it's not rocket science what
4: we do. (laughs) Um, It is the perfect Uh, part of of you you need a fair amount of chutzpah you need to have lists of everybody you meet and how to get hold of them and how to deal with them and what they're like I have a Rolodex on my computer of about 4,000 names and every detail I pick up about them and every time any of them does something on behalf of one of my clients, an interview or anything, I I put that in there. So I've got like a, a running record. And like any other profession or trade in the world, who you know is every bit as important as what you know. And the only other thing I say is a certain amount of hyperbole is expected and understood. But if you lie, you will never believe... If you say... The Downchild blues band is the best blues band in history or so-and-so is the best band since the Beatles if you never lied to them before they may kind of go oh all right we'll go and have a listen but if it doesn't match up to what the, the hype was not only does the artist suffer but the publicist suffers with that media person I had a really embarrassing thing the other week um, Brad Wheeler, who's a friend of mine who's on the Globe and Mail, asked for moments in Canadian Folk Festival history for a piece that's gonna run in the Globe, the Globe and Mail, or as I call it, the grope and fail, um, uh, tomorrow. And he asked me and I told him this, this story and uh, that my first year as the artistic director, I had, and whatever the story, you'll read it tomorrow. And then he said, but you weren't the artistic director in 1988. I Says I was so too. So, then he sent me a PDF of the program. Somebody called Drago Malina was the artistic director. I'm like, the life of me, I didn't know. I really thought, and I've always thought that that was the year I. I wrote. Back, I said, well, maybe I'm just going dotty in my old age or whatever. But the story is still valid, and he's kind of excused me for my stupidness, and, and error. And uh, you'll read the piece tomorrow and say, yeah, he skirted around that one really nicely. Uh, but I think that, you know, anybody who wants to get in this, if anybody here locally, I'll help him. I'll give him my Rolodex. I don't care. Share. Hi, I'm Colleen Eccleston from Vancouver Island. Hello. Hello. one time. <laughs> I've, I've come from the legend of Sleepy
2: Hollow, or that's what it is feels like sometimes to be a West Coast artist compared to the rest of Canada. And I've realized that at my, at my age, I have,
6: um, the glut of the population is my age. So I've decided that that's an asset. But what advice would you give to an artist to, who wants to go across the country? How do you, um, the, it seems to be a conundrum about the way to apply for festivals or the way to um, make connections with people. But if you're living on one side of the country, how do you make that that path across the country.
1: Mitch has come out with a solution to that, haven't you, Mitch?
3: Well, she's done our circuit. She's done one of our circuits, Colleen has.
2: I'd love to do another one, Mitch. Yeah, I know.
3: (laughs) Talk to Tim. Um, But here's the reality, uh, folks. uh, I mean, this is how I'm looking at it these days. There are this many good, talented, experienced, and wonderful musicians in North America right now in the folk world. The gig hole is about this big. In comparison, we expect that we're at 16 circuits, <clears throat> and we expect to get to 90 circuits in North America, and then we think the gig hole is going to be that big. We don't. We don't think we're a solution. We think we're just part of part of a process, and I think I don't know the answer to that question in in, in the big broad sense, Colleen, because. Because it, ugh, the infrastructure that exists is so um, modeled and unmodeled, shaped by everything else. You know, uh, uh, folk music is uh, f- folk music, acoustic music. Uh, we're still a real small part of the music industry, and and when sometimes people have said to, to I've heard the term, you know, the folk music industry. I want to gag, <laughs> right? Because, you know, to, 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 to be an industry, you have to have jobs and you have to create, you know? You have to, to be able you know, and I think, I think that I look at us and I, in Canada, for instance, and I compare the folk music industry. Now, this is all the festivals combined with everything else. The economics, some of the festivals have very big budgets now, right? But when you add them all together, with all the concerts that happen, right? It doesn't even come close to max milk you know so what we are is a very very small corner of the music industry and the one chance we have is to think of ourselves more as a community and try to help each other as a community and that that is the only thing that i only practical approach that i can even think of i may some i just may be dumb and i'm missing the point you know i don't know i've been asking myself this question for damn well 50 years in some ways and uh I don't know
6: (laughs) thank you hi Rich
5: I'm Rich Warren from WFMT radio in Chicago and I have had the pleasure of attending all of the wisdom of the elders panels that Sonny has presented and I always get verklempt when I attend these when I see you people on stage and realize how much you have influenced my life and what I do today when I was 13 I wanted to make a career in folk radio And i realized that dream and i think back to 1968 i got a job at a stereo store which happened to sell records in those days And i could buy records at a discount which were very expensive if you recall back in those days and the first thing i did was buy all of ian and sylvia's albums i even put them on tape afraid i was going to wear out the lps and i wanted a backup copy and i never thought i'd have the the pleasure and the honor of sharing a room with you sylvia tyson because your music has certainly meant a lot to me and to this day you are a regular on the Midnight Special. And uh, it's just a great honor. And then Mitch Podolick, uh, when I first started WFMT, I'd never been to a folk festival. And Mitch invited me and my boss to come up to Winnipeg to the folk festival. And this was like a revelation to me. And his graciousness and generosity in inviting us to that festival and treating us with the performers we allowed to go backstage and spend time with the performers and everything, Uh, changed my whole perspective on the whole folk music community was attending the Winnipeg Folk Festival. And I just can't say how gracious Mitch was in in welcoming us and making us part of that community, which was so far from Chicago. And so I just have to say thank you. And Richard's a more recent acquaintance, but when I read his postings, I realize, as he was saying earlier, you know, I know that there's a lot of truth in what he posts, so I'm interested in the music he's promoting. And that's a lot of, of cred there. Uh, so thanks to all of you for making this community what it is. And I, I personally, I might not be here today if it wasn't for some of you. So thanks so much.
7: Uh, Lillian Wathy here Toronto. Uh, I too want to, I was going to say, I want to thank you as well for your vast influence you've had on the whole... Uh, music community in Canada it's been wonderful and I know that and hope that you all have many many years ahead of you but my question uh, on top of that is for all three of you uh, wondering if there's anything that you feel uh, that's left for you something that you have not done that you've left unfinished uh, something that you have wanted to do and still have not had a chance to do so and would like to So what's in the future for you? Learn to
3: sing.
6: (laughs) Uh, Somebody once asked Willie Nelson if he ever thought of retiring. And he said, all I do is play music and play golf. What do you want me to give up? (laughs) I
4: don't play golf. (laughs) Um, The one thing I've, I've actually started to do is write a collection of stories and whatever and the book i'm 23 24 000 words in to now is called louis armstrong's laxative and 100 other mostly true stories about life in the music <laughs> business <laughs> well that's
3: that's my ambition is to sit down and write a book and it's uh, it's taken me about 15 years to Logically come up with the first paragraph <laughs> and I've done that now Once and you've done
4: the first paragraph the rest the rest goes <laughs> the
3: rest goes. and I've also come up with a title and, and basically I've I've been I've been like these guys. We've been fortunate to pretty much meet our heroes most of our heroes or a lot of them and uh, It's uh, I boy people like Pete Zowski, you know, who I got to work with and uh, And be and be very grateful to have worked with him. I'm gonna write a book. I think about those people who have passed on, who I've encountered. And there's a lot of weird people. Some of them are from politics, and some of them are for folk from folk music, and some of them are from both. And so that's what I hope to do over the next couple of years. I'm thinking about paying attention to what Richard did and going on that website where he asked people for money. <laughs>
6: are
4: you going to write another book, Sylvia? I'm
6: five chapters into the new one. Right. <laughs> so,
3: yeah, when you get older, you're right.
6: I thought it would take me off the road but apparently pub- publicizing your book is
1: <laughs>
7: uh, Hi, I'm Wanda Fisher and um, I do a radio program uh, at WMC in Albany and I too, just like Rich, I look up here and um, particularly Sylvia um, I just God, I wished I could always sing like you it was like one of my ambitions um, and I just can't even tell you how wonderful it is to share the same airspace. Um, I have a little bit of a dichotomy here. I do radio on Saturday night, but my day job is as a public relations and marketing person. And one of the things that happens as a radio person is that we get things from all sorts of levels of publicists. And I wanted to kind of throw this at Richard. Um, Are you on my list? No. Well, then
4: we'll talk about that afterwards.
7: Um, But one of the things I wanted to say is that um, there are publicists and then there are publicists. Um, There are publicists who send us something and I receive it on a Saturday, and by Tuesday they want me to have reviewed it. Um, And uh, then there are publicists who... uh, you who send you something and they will actually give you time to absorb it and uh, and review it. So if somebody were to be thinking about becoming a publicist for the folk community as it is, as opposed to the folk industry, um, what kind of mentoring would you be doing to, um, if somebody were to come to you and ask them to for you to be their mentor? What, would, what kind of approach? Because you have to be a little, you have to be aggressive, you have to be creative, but what's the line?
4: Well, I, I, I have a funny, funny system because I, I work in Toronto and I, I don't really get that much into the American market, but people who call me and say, can I pick your brain? You know? Uh, well, what's left of it? Sure, <laughs> here's the deal. You buy my breakfast at eight o'clock in the morning. And that uh, indicates a certain degree of um, commitment. A, they gotta get up. B, they gotta pay for the breakfast. (laughs) And they can pick my brain. And, And I have to say that I have had the fortune over the last 30, 40 years of doing this, of working with I usually like, and I don't mean to sound sexist, I usually like to work with young women. First of all, they know a lot more than I do about all sorts of things, particularly now with computers and all that stuff. Um, and uh, they're much nicer to look at across the office. It's a terrible thing to say. It's a good thing um, Many of them have gone on to be publicists. Sarah French, who worked with me for a couple of years, does dozens of blues artists. That's her little little specialty niche. Um, I, many years ago, I worked very briefly with a woman called Denise Donlan, who become, became you know, one of the major figures in, she's doing a television show with that idiot, Conrad Black. I don't believe it but she's gonna learn a lot of new $25 words doing it. Um, so as a mentor, I would, I'm always willing to be a mentor. Always, but my, my rule, as I said before, is don't lie. A certain amount of hype is, and return phone calls and emails as fast as you can. Um, and that's, that's all I can say, and don't lie. Don't bullshit too much.
7: Don't lie because an enterprising reporter will
4: always find out yes. the lie. Yes. And yeah. once you've been seen with your trousers around your ankles, <laughs> the image stays. And, and I would add to that, that
6: that the genuine ones answer their phone calls. That's right. Yeah. Your turn. Hi, Tanya Corbin from the Edmonton Folk Festival. Um, this is sort of mostly for Richard and Mitch, but I'm curious, Sylvia, if you have an answer as well. I've been told many times that if you really want to continue to love music, it's not a good idea to work in it. Um, But you guys are both still pretty involved and pretty enthusiastic sort of music fans, I think, from everything I see. How did you get there? How do you keep it fresh? Like, How do you continue to feel the love?
3: It's about the vibe. It's about the harmonic vibration. It's about the physical power of harmonic vibration. I don't know about you guys, but I listen to music a lot. And I listen to it in front of two speakers and I listen to it often alone, you know, in my little, I have a little snoratorium with a computer and a, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, for, for me, you know, like I I had the, working at the West End Cultural Center, I had the the... Absolute pleasure of producing uh, five or six years worth of uh, audience sing along, Messiah's, right. And if you if you ever sit in the middle of that, right, <laughs> and you want to know about, I used to listen to the old jazz guys at the Bohemian Embassy, and they'd say, you know, it was it's, it's the vibe, man, you know. And it wasn't. I thought they were talking about the atmospherics of the joint. They weren't. They were talking about a physical force that music has. That somehow captures, you know. You ever listen to modal tunings on a banjo, right? It will take you someplace else sometimes, and uh, for me, that's what it's about. I love that. I love that. And so, as long as that's alive, fuck, it's great. (laughs) (laughs) Who
6: said it better be safe?
4: Well, my theory or whatever is that I go out four nights a week to hear music. We're lucky that in Toronto there are lots of venues and there's lots of different kinds of music. And I try and listen to as much as I can. I have a huge record collection in my living room, much to my wife's discontent, because they seem to spread around the house. Did you know? Did you know that if you have two CDs and you put them touching each other overnight, there'll be a third one. <laughs> uh, oh, And it's true, it's absolutely true, provable. Um, So because I'm old, I don't need much sleep, which this week, since I'm involved in something called the Crossing Borders Suite, which ends at 3 o'clock in the morning, thank God I live only a block and a half away, I can stumble home, but here I am at 10 o'clock in the morning again. um, Keep listening to music, keep... I cannot honestly say that I've ever been burned out listening music, even at events like this where there's so much, or at a folk festival where there's seven stages and... Go backstage, refresh yourself, hang around with Soviet Tyson, have a glass of white wine, get into a discussion with Maria Moldar and Jennifer Warnes about over-singing and why not to do it. Things like that. That, that keeps you going forever. All
1: right, I'm going to ask our panelists, starting down with uh, Mitch, Final
3: words. We have something. uh, I think we got something great and unique and beautiful, and we're lucky to be part of a community that has this thing. I don't want us to be snobs about it. Our job is to is to continue to proselytize this art form and these many art forms. That are that are that make up folk music. I figure ninety percent of the world's music is folk music, and the other ten percent is kind of influenced by it one way or another. Uh, so I kind of I kind of think that we you know we have something fantastic, and and we we often uh, get lost in in uh, in uh, we get lost in the wrong reasons for things very often and. It, you know, it's like, it's like, why do you, uh, why does a folk festival uh, program rock and roll? Because it hasn't, you know, well, I, can, I have lots of answers to that question, but you can turn on the radio and you can go station to station to station, and you can hear drums and bass, drums and bass. I did it coming, driving into Toronto one day. I every single station on AM and every, every one on FM and everyone but the CBC at the time, drums and bass. It's it's like white noise. We are not white noise. And the songwriters that come through our community are not white noise. We have a lot of important things to say, and we have a tradition to reach back to, and we have a tradition to grow. And that's what everybody should be thinking about, in my opinion.
1: All right. Thank you, Mitch. Mitch, I know you have another engagement that you have to get off to. Uh you have permission to run away if you need to? Yeah, I have to, thanks. I know you do. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you Mitch. Very Podolic Mitch Padalik.
2: <laughs> Please corner him. If there are questions unanswered for Mitch, corner him. He'll tell you the truth. <laughs>
1: oh, yes. And now, Sylvia Tyson.
6: Actually, uh, what I'd like to talk about is not necessarily music. I have to say, at this point in my life, I probably absorbed most of the influences i'm going to absorb and have set about the business of making use of them but one thing i would like to point to is service to your art and i i'm a great believer in that that if you have a certain amount of success in an area of endeavor at a certain point in your life you have to put something back in and whether that means industry associations or, or working on a one-to-one basis with somebody you think is good, or whatever form it takes, at a certain point, you really need to give back. You need to do it for yourself as much as for, for the art itself. Thank you, Sylvia.
4: For once, I'm gonna be really brief. Everything Mitch said, I am in total 100% agreement with. And everything that Sylvia said, I'm 120% involved with. And that's all I'll say. Whatever you do, keep doing it. Keep trying to do it better. And, And this is life. Make it as good as you possibly can.
1: Tom, do you have any reflections
4: on what
2: sorry?
1: Do you have any reflections on what transpired today or or the music business in general? Nothing
2: that would change anything that these amazing people have said or add to it. You have it all here. I have nothing more to say.
1: I just have one thing I'd like to add, and that is I just love the existence of this concept of the wisdom of the elders because we've heard all of these people interviewed on a one-to-one basis over and over. Just the idea of bringing them together as a group, to me, is very special. And whatever region you live in, I'm asking you, I'm begging you, go to the people who run your regional conferences, ask them to do the same thing there. Find three people, three elders in your region, bring them in and interview them and videotape it because we are creating an archive which will be housed in the uh, International Folk Alliance office so that people further down the road will have a chance to, to examine and to listen and to learn. And I thank you all for coming here.
2: Thank you, Sonny. Thanks for inviting me. Richard, Sylvia. Well, there you have it wisdom of
0: the elders toronto 2013. sunny that was just an incredible look at uh, the canadian folk scene which is i think thriving because of these three individuals uh, the, you know as you mentioned before sylvia tyson uh ian and sylvia were just so phenomenal in how many people they influenced and, and mitch Pedalek um again a name i don't think a lot of people here in the u.s know as well as they should but he was such a an important figure and uh, i know his son is still performing and 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 the, the, the festivals are going on and rich flow hill he's still writing and uh, still promoting and wow you know one of the things that struck me was they were talking about how hard it was to be a musician and how hard this music was to promote in 2013 and i can only i'm I can only imagine. Ten years later, it's got to be even harder in Canada.
1: Well, I think everybody is competing with the internet now, and that really, with all these different agencies that are throwing their music out there, it's making it hard on everybody. I just,
0: uh, Mitch said something in the in the interview where he was saying how how difficult it was because really folk music is such a small part of the music industry and i don't know whether we've gotten bigger or larger since then or or shr- or we've shrunk but uh you know it's still important to dedicated people like this that, that carry it on and, and their legacy mitch's legacy is uh, obviously gonna gonna bring us to get together for the future well i think this was a fun event um i think we have some good plans for next month and more more coming up in the future any, any final thoughts before we say goodbye Well, I just hope everybody is enjoying these podcasts,
1: and I really think they are very important. We need this archive of so many of these wonderful people, some of whom have already left us. So this gives us a way to see them and hear them. Mm -hmm. So thank you for tuning in and tell your friends about this.
0: That's right. And thanks to NERFA for helping us uh, get this podcast going. And uh, Folk Music Notebook, a little organization that I happen to be involved with. <laughs> we- a little we- bit. We- <laughs> uh, but, you know, and also YouTube. Uh, a number of the original videos uh, Folk Alliance International have posted on on YouTube. So uh, I hope folks will check it out. And I hope they'll be back again next month. Sonny, it's always a pleasure. And uh, have a great month. You too, Ron. And you too li- out there listening.